need those, might need those later. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming and joining us here this morning for this Lord's Day. If you're visiting with us here, we're especially glad you're here. And uh, we pray that this time of, of worship we've had this morning, by the way, it was wonderful. Thank you, Jace, for being here with us today. We appreciate that so much. And um, we hope that, that the fellowship together, you'll meet some, some friendly folks here today, and our time in the Word of God will edify you and build you up spiritually. We're in a study of the book of Nehemiah. We're coming to the close of that. Uh, we're nearing the close. And uh, we've titled this study, Rebuilding Your Future. And if you'll take your Bible and turn with me to Nehemiah 12, we're going to look at verses 27 to 47 this morning. And as I said, we're moving to the end of our study of the book of Nehemiah. I've enjoyed this study very much. We'll uh, finish it, though, next week, Lord willing. And uh, we've seen in this study, if you've been with us, kind of two main sections to the book of Nehemiah. The first six chapters are the reconstruction of the city and the walls of the city. And then chapters 7 to 13, the last half of the book, is uh, the reinstruction or the reformation of the citizens of the city. So by the time we get here to chapter 12, the place and the people now have been rebuilt and they've been reformed. And uh, so now we come to a great dedication ceremony uh, for the walls of the city. Let me uh, just do a selected reading from our text. Let's begin in verse 27. Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. So the sons of the singers were assembled from the district around Jerusalem and from the village of the uh, Netophathites from Bel, uh, Beth Gilgal, and from their fields in Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built themselves villages around Jerusalem, and the priests and the Levites purified themselves. They also purified the people, the, the gates and the walls. Then I had the leaders of Judah come on the top of the wall, and I appointed two great choirs, the first proceeding to the right uh, on the top of the wall toward the refuse gate. Now drop down to uh, verse 38. The second choir proceeded to the left while I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the furnaces to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim by the old gate, by the fish gate, by the tower of Hananel and the tower of the hundred as far as the sheep gate. And they stopped at the gate of the guard. Then the two choirs took their stand in the house of God. So did I and half of the officials uh, with me. And then drop down to verse 43. And on that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. Even the women and the children rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. On that day men were appointed over the chambers for the stores, the contributions, the first fruits, for the tithes to gather them in from the fields of the cities, the portions required by the law. For the priests, the Levites, for Judah rejoice over the priests and the Levites who served. For they performed the worship of their God and the service of purification together with the singers, the gatekeepers in accordance with the command of David and of his son Solomon. Well, so reads God's inspired, inerrant word. There's a book I have in my library. I read it years ago, and I went back to it uh, this week. It's a book on worship by John MacArthur, and uh, the title of the book is The Ultimate Priority. And uh, John MacArthur opens the book with these words. He says, a few years ago, the Chicago Tribune reported the story of a New Mexico woman who was frying tortillas when she noticed that the skillet burns on one of her tortillas resembled the face of Jesus. 
excited, she showed it to her husband and neighbors, and they all agreed there was a face etched on the tortilla and that truly bore a resemblance to Jesus. So the woman went to her priest to have the tortilla blessed. She testified the tortilla had changed her life, and her husband agreed she had been a more peaceful, happy, submissive wife since the tortilla had arrived. The priest, not accustomed to blessing tortillas, was somewhat reluctant but agreed to do so. The woman took their tortilla home, put it in a glass case with piles of cotton to make it look like it was floating on clouds, built a special altar for it, and opened the little shrine to visitors. Within a few months, more than 8,000 people came to the shrine of the Jesus of the tortilla. And all of them agreed the face of, and, the, and the burn marks was the face of Jesus, except for one reporter who said he thought it looked more like former heavyweight boxing champion Leon Spinks. <laughs> And here's what MacArthur says after that, though. He says, It seems incredible so many people would worship a tortilla, but such a distorted concept of worship is not really unusual in contemporary society. Tragically, although the Bible is clear about how and whom and when we are to worship, little genuine worship takes place today. Worship is one of the most misunderstood doctrines in the Bible. And I agree with that. Our culture today is totally confused about worship. And the tragic thing is, even in the church, I think worship today can be misunderstood. There's an old saying I'm sure many of you have heard about people today. We, we worship our work, uh, we work at our play, and we play in our worship. And uh, we don't want that to be true of us here at Faith Bible Church as God's people. And worship is really the key to all of life. It's, it's the core. It's the mainspring. It's really the essential element. I mean, worship dominates the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. I mean, after the, the fall of Adam and Eve and a lot of the results of the fall, it says in Genesis 4.26, Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. You go and read about Noah and Abraham as they build altars to God to worship Him. You go all the way through to the book of Revelation, the very last chapter, there's that statement the angel makes to John, and he says to John, worship God. So from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, we see that we were created to worship God. Now, I want to pause for a moment and define worship because some of you may have a nebulous idea, and I want everyone to leave here this morning knowing what worship is. When we talk about worship, we're talking about giving something to God. You say, well, what do we give to God? What we give to God is honor and adoration and value and worth. Worship is making much of God, of who God is and what God has done. It's esteeming God. A worship is all that we are reacting rightly to all that God is. If you want to just one little sentence, worship is worship. It's gratefully acknowledging the worthiness and the worth of our God. That's what worship is. And that's what Nehemiah 12, 27 to 47 is about. It's about worshiping God. In fact, down in verse 45, it summarizes it. Now they perform the worship of their God. Now this section, though, in Nehemiah is not as much about defining worship as it is describing worship. It's really an illustration for us of what true worship looks like. So this passage answers the question, how do we worship God? How do you and I give worth to God? What does it look like in concrete terms? What does God want from us? And I think here in Nehemiah 12, it gives us the essential ingredients of true worship. 
And I want to go through this passage, and at the end of the message, I'm going to go to a passage in the New Testament where it'll bring these same three things together for us. Now, in your outline, you can see these three elements are purification, praise, and provision. Here's another way to think of it that's maybe more simple. In worship, we give three things to God, our self, our song, and our substance. I give God myself, I give Him my song, that is my praise, and I give Him my substance. Another way to look at it is, in worship, I give God my person, I give God my praise, and I give God my pocketbook. Now, those are the only, I can't alliterate any more of these, so that's the best I can do this morning. But yourself, your song, your substance. So this passage takes us to the heart of what worship is really all about, and we're going to see here that it touches every area of life. Now, notice here, worship begins with purification. Uh, Let me just paint in a little bit of background if you haven't been with us. Again, uh, Nehemiah was the the cupbearer of of King Artaxerxes in Persia. Um, He's moved by God to come back to Jerusalem. Uh, The city's destroyed. The walls are in ruins. And he comes back, and he's energized by God, and the people are energized to rebuild the walls of the city. And they do that, you remember, Nehemiah 6.15 tells us, in 52 days. And there's been some other things now intervening between chapter 6 and here. When we get to chapter 12 now, it's a dedication ceremony. Uh, The city is, is repopulated, it's been rebuilt, and they have a worship service or a dedication ceremony to dedicate the wall. And the first step in their worship was to give themselves to God. Notice in verse 30, And the priests and the Levites purified themselves. Down in verse 45, they performed the worship of their God and the service of their purification. They submit themselves, I believe, in obedience to the Lord. We see in this chapter that people are happy. They're filled with rejoicing and gladness. But holiness here comes before the happiness. Uh, The heart has to be pure first. There has to be purification before their celebration. So the people dedicate themselves first, then the walls of the city. And that's the proper order. It all begins with dedicating ourselves to the Lord. Many of you here know Romans 12.1. Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is what? Your spiritual service of worship. We often call this whole life worship, of giving our life to the Lord. The dedication of the wall here was only as significant as the dedication of these people, and they first give themselves to the Lord. They purify themselves. Now you say, well, what does that mean? What does it mean they purified themselves? Well, probably in that day, that included fasting. If they were married, probably for a period of time, there was abstaining from sexual relations. Uh, There was uh, sacrifices that were offered. There was probably bathing and cleansing themselves and, and putting on clean clothes. But they came to give themselves to the Lord. And again, I like to call this, I've gotten this from other people, whole life worship. We often think of worship as singing and praising God. And certainly that's an element of worship that we're going to see here in just a few minutes. But our whole life really is an offering of worship to God. Sometimes we we have a minimalistic view of what worship is. Our whole life should be laid before the Lord as a sacrifice of worship, an expression of His worth to us. God, You're worth so much to me that I give everything that I am uh, to You. 
Now, what's the basis for us to give ourselves to the Lord? Why should we give ourselves to Him? It's because of who He is. God is the Creator. God is infinite. God is eternal. He never has a beginning and never has an ending. And we see God revealed to us in creation, and we see God revealed to us in His Word. And as we look at creation, and as we look in the Bible, we see who God is, and we respond to Him in worship by giving our lives to Him. I read a story about a young man who was struggling with whether to go through an arranged marriage. He lived in America, and, but it was the custom of his family and the culture he'd come from to have arranged marriages. In fact, they were uh, arranged uh, at the time of birth. Uh, he'd never met his wife-to-be, but he thought, well, he'd, he'd uh, carry out his duty. So he goes to the airport, and he's standing there waiting for her, holding flowers in his hands with kind of a, a gloomy expression on his face. But when she stepped through the terminal, everything changed. She was beautiful. And suddenly his glum uh, demeanor disappeared. And the thought of marrying this woman was no longer a dread but a delight. When you think about that, what had changed? He had seen her, right? And that's the motivation for us to love and to worship God. It's seeing Him. And we see God every day in the, the beauty of the creation that He's made around us. We see God every day in uh, the Scriptures. We get a vision of who God truly is. Suddenly, we're energized to give ourselves to Him and to delight in Him. And these people in Nehemiah's day had seen God. They'd seen His provision and His protection, and they'd seen His power. And they're energized now to give themselves as an offering of praise uh, to God. And my prayer is that you and I are motivated in our lives to do the same thing to give God worth, to give worship to God as we give ourselves, our bodies, everything we are as a, a living sacrifice, as our service of worship to Him. So the first element of worship is to give yourself to the Lord. Now the second element of worship or aspect of it here is praise or our song. Notice verse 31. Then I had the leaders of Judah come up on top of the wall, and I appointed two great choirs. Literally, the, the word there in Greek is, or in Hebrew is two great thanksgiving choirs. The first proceeding to the ride on the top of the wall toward the refuse gate. And he goes on down in verse 38 to talk about the second choir. So in the book of Nehemiah, we've had workers on the wall, we've had watchers on the wall, but now we have worshipers on the wall. And the focus here is praise to God. And eight times in these verses, you have the word singing. Seven times you have the word thanksgiving, or six times. Seven times you have the words rejoicing. Three times musical instruments are referred to. I mean, they pull out all the stops. Notice verse 27. The dedication of the wall, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so they might celebrate the dedication with gladness with hymns of thanksgiving, with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals and harps and lyres. I mean, this is joyful, loud music that's accompanied by various instruments. they got cymbals and harps, and a lyre probably is kind of like a, an electric guitar we have without the amp, basically, back in that day. But the purpose of this was to celebrate what God had done. And, and Nehemiah divides these singers into two thanksgiving choirs. Ezra leads one of them. Nehemiah leads the other one. And the purpose is to give thanks and gratitude to God. I like what G.K. Chesterton said. He said, there are two ways to take life with gratitude or for granted. And these people are taking life 
uh, with gratitude. They're filled with gratitude, and we must be as well. So they have these Thanksgiving choirs, and verse 36 says that Ezra takes off with one of the choirs, and he goes to the right. They go south, and they follow the wall in a counterclockwise direction. And then in verse 38, Nehemiah's group starts off to the north and follows the wall in a clockwise direction. And probably there's what we might call antiphonal praise as one group marching along on the wall will cry out and sing to God, and the other one will then answer. Uh, The wall back then in Nehemiah's day was, uh, archaeologists tell us, about 2.6 miles long about 40 feet high and 9 feet wide. So it was wide enough for people to walk along the top of the wall. But the whole city was encircled. I mean, we can call this wall-to-wall worship, and that's where I've gotten the title for our message here this morning. We are in Israel last March. When we're in uh, the time when we're in Jerusalem, one of my favorite things is to walk over into the old city of Jerusalem at night. And you, you can go down there to the Jewish quarter, down to the Wailing Wall, and that area, it's beautiful. And uh, when we went down there, the one night I went down there, the first night, there were several concerts going on there. There was one down inside the Jaffa Gate and one down in the Jewish quarter. But once we came to, we walked up to the Jaffa Gate, there was a group of about four singers up on top of the wall. And they had lights on them. And it's not the original wall. It's not Nehemiah's wall, but it's, it's a one built several hundred years ago. But still a very tall wall, about the same height Nehemiah's wall would have been. And it was beautiful. They're up there singing. You could hear them from far away. And so I didn't understand what they were saying. None of us did. But it was beautiful music. And that kind of reminded me this week as I read this, of people up on the wall, they're marching along and singing uh, praises to God. But there's lots of singing here. Notice in verse 42, it says, All the singers sang. Uh, You get the impression here as you read this chapter that these people are enjoying themselves. I mean, in verse 27, they're celebrating with the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, and they're accompanied by cymbals and harps and lyres. The people are having fun here, it's a celebration. Uh, Chuck Swindoll, in his book on Nehemiah, pictures this as a sort of Jewish Disneyland parade. I like that, Uh, going around the tops of the walls. You kind of get that in your mind. But notice in verse 40, the two choirs took their stand in the house of God. So they march around the walls of the city, and they converge. A mass convergence takes place there at the temple. And there at the temple, there's a crescendo of praise that goes up to God. And verse 43 says, And on that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. Even the women and children rejoiced. So the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. Everyone participates. And you can hear it from far off. It's kind of like if you've ever walked up to a a full stadium, a, a football stadium. And if you know who the home team is, you can pretty much tell what's happening just by listening to the roars or the groans, right, that are coming uh, from the stadium. The the noise travels far. The city of Jerusalem is kind of uh, on a a ridge there in in Israel with several steep valleys around it. And so the sound of their praise is just reverberating out through the countryside. It says you could hear it far off. And they're celebrating what God has done for them. About a hundred years before this, King Cyrus, the Persian, had allowed the Jewish people to come back from their 70-year captivity. Three waves of Jewish people had returned. 
God had led Nehemiah to come back with a burden and a vision to rebuild the city. King Artaxerxes, the Persian king at that time, had given Nehemiah basically carte blanche for whatever resources he needed. God had protected the rebuilding of the wall. You remember they had these enemies, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem. They overcame their enemies by God's help. God had brought the people in chapter 10 to a place of confession and consecration. They've come a long way since chapter 1 when Nehemiah is over in Persia and the walls of the city are broken down and it's a big pile of rubble. And God saw them through all of this and God had moved mightily on their behalf. And so they're celebrating all of this by giving praise to God. And that's what praise is. It's giving glory to God for who He is and what He's done. That's why we praise Him. We ought to come to the Lord when we gather together here on Sundays with full-throated, wholehearted praise to God. That's what God desires from us. And I pray as a church that God will convict us more and more to do that. And really, it just flows out of your own heart and your own life. If you're really not a worshiper during the week, it's kind of hard to come here and worship God together with God's people. The, the corporate praise we have together is just kind of an overflow, if you will, from the praise in our lives during the week. Now, one of the things about worship and praise when we come together corporately is people like different styles and they have all kinds of different tastes and preferences when it comes to music, right? People like different kinds of music. They like different kinds of instruments. I did some reading this week, and it was interesting uh, to kind of get some historical perspective. Uh, The church has not only been divided over music at different times, but they were divided over what kind of instruments to have. But there's been times when they've been divided over whether to have instruments at all. So think about that. Do we even have instruments? If we have them, what ones do we have? If you have instruments, then what kind of songs do you sing? You know, all kinds of, of variety out there. Uh, But back in the time of the Swiss reformers, they practiced non-instrumental worship. In fact, um, it was not until the 19th century that Presbyterians, Congregationalists, and Baptists even employed instruments at all in their congregational worship. So there was a big debate back further where they even had uh, music or musical instruments at all. But here's a really good quote that summarizes it well by a guy named Raymond Brown. He said, sadly, the debate about worship in the contemporary scene is marred by a reluctance on the part of both traditionalists and moderns to acknowledge they have an enormous amount to give and receive from each other. Newly composed worship songs convey a freshness, immediacy, and vitality to worship. Their words are not as familiar as some of the older hymns, though many of them have a great merit of keeping close to the text of Scripture. On the other hand, many of the great hymns of our faith are rich in teaching, devotion, and language. They've sustained millions of believers through difficult and bewildering times. Such a legacy is not a matter of indifference to sensitive worshipers. And then he closes with this statement, contemporary Christians need to combine the older material and the new. And I think that's a good summary of that. And that's what we try to do here at Faith Bible Church, a a combination of the old and the new. There's a, a continuity that the old gives us, but sometimes there's a freshness from the new. But let's not get hung up on preferences and styles and tastes. The focus is not on us, it's on Him. And the people here were singing psalms that were 500 years old, but I'm sure they sung some new songs as well. 
And our singing shouldn't be something that divides us. It ought to be something that brings us together as we put aside our preferences and we worship with one voice to God with joy and with gladness. I mean, I don't know about you, but I get excited about Sunday morning. Now, you people might say, well, you should. You're the preacher, so if you're not excited, who will be? But, but I'd like to tell you this this morning. I always have. I mean, even when I was a, a young boy, I loved to go to church and to be with God's people, and I always have. Even when we're away on vacation sometimes, I'll, I'll slip away and try to just find somewhere to go and to be with God's people. We ought to be excited to, to join corporately with the people of God to express the, the worship of God to us. In corporate times of praise and singing, we share together and we recall the incomparable joys of God, of who He is and what He's done for us. And some of us here, many of us, we may not raise our hands when we sing, but we better raise our voices. We may not move our bodies a lot, but we better be moved down deep in our heart. I mean, there should be a palpable joy when we gather together as God's people. I mean, after all, we're headed for heaven, right? I mean, we've been redeemed. We have life. We have hope. When we gather together, it should be a supremely happy occasion, hearts overflowing with joy and gladness to God. And again, that's not going to happen if we're not worshipers during the week. I mean, to me, our corporate worship is simply a reflection of our individual lives of worship before the Lord. And I, I pray that you take time in your life every day to not only read the Bible and pray, but to worship the Lord. Far too often we have many activities in our lives and too little worship. The the worship and the praise aspect of our worship can get rooted out by the busyness and the hurry of life. We're often big on ministry and activities and doing a lot of things, but we're short on adoration of God. Often we have too many Marthas and not enough Marys, I guess might be a way to put it. There's a story I read about an explorer. He was making a trek in the Amazon jungle. And the native tribesmen were, were carrying the, the burdens for him there. And he was driving them with great force because he wanted to cover a lot of ground rapidly. And at the end of the third day, they rested. And when the morning came, he wanted them all to gather up their burdens and head out again. And they all just sat there. And he kept trying to get somebody to tell him to get up and bring these things. And finally, he asked the chief what was wrong. And the chief told him this. He said, my friend, they're resting until their souls catch up with their bodies. And you and I need that a lot during the week, don't we? We need our soul to catch up with our bodies. That's what's happening here in Nehemiah. The people have been busy. They've been building the wall. They've been active. But now they're worshiping God and allowing their souls to catch up with their bodies because our souls wither without worship. And I pray that every one of us here give the Lord our praise every day. And You may sing hymns to the Lord. You may know a lot of old hymns like I do. You may take the songs that we've sung here on Sunday morning. A lot of times these songs are ringing in my mind through the week. As I go to the Lord or get up in the morning or driving in the car, I sing praises to the Lord. Or we can just say things to God and ascribing worth to Him. It's it's saying and it's singing, but it's, it's spoken praise to God about who He is, speaking to Him of His greatness. Psalm 109 verse 1 says it like this, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. We're to say so to Him. We can do it in speaking. 
but we can do it through our singing. There's a story, I think I've told this before, about a little boy sitting on a park bench and he has an open Bible before him and he's sitting there reading the Bible and all of a sudden he, he cries out, Hallelujah, Hallelujah, which obviously means praise God, praise God, God is great. Well, about that time an atheist man was walking through the park and he looked at this young man and thought, well, I need to enlighten this young fellow. So he says, young man, what are you hollering about there? And yelling hallelujah to God. And he says, well, he says, man, God is so great and powerful. He says, I was just reading that God opened the waves of the Red Sea and the whole nation of Israel went right through the middle of it. He says, it's incredible. I'm praising God. The atheist said, well, now, young man, he said, you know, Scientists tell us now that the children of Israel, you know, didn't go through a big deep part of water. It was just 10 inches of water. You know, the, the place they went through the Red Sea was just 10, inch, 10 inches deep. And uh, so, you know, it's really not any big deal. You know, the, the Bible and these things, you don't really need to believe that is true. Well, a little boy was kind of stumped and he, his eyes wandered and he began to read the passage a little bit more and the atheist started walking away. All of a sudden, the little boy started yelling, Hallelujah, praise God. The atheist said, What is it now? The little boy said, Well, God is greater than I thought. Not only did he lead the whole nation of Israel through the Red Sea, he topped it off by drowning the whole Egyptian army in 10 inches of water. <laughs> now, I love that story because we don't want to allow the world to steal our Hallelujah, if you will. With all the secularization that's out there in our world today and, and all the skepticism that's there, it can steal the hallelujah that we have to God. God is great, and He is greatly to be praised, and we need to give God uh, His due and praise His glorious name. I hope that Faith Bible Church is, is known by people who come here as a, a worshiping church, but I want that to be more and more true of us. Uh, let's gather together every week excited, filled with gladness and rejoicing in the fact that we can come here as God's people gathered together to ascribe worth uh, to our great God. Well, the final aspect of authentic worship, we've talked about this a couple of times, so I'm just going to mention it briefly, is provision. The people first give themselves to God, they give their song to God, but then notice they give their substance to God. Verse 44 says, they came and uh, they brought their first fruits and the tithes from the fields and they gathered them together. Down in verse 47, it says, they gave the portions that were due. Verse 47, the middle of the verse, they gave the consecrated portion. I like what Ray Stedman says about this. He says, the one way you can be sure this was a religious event is if they took an offering. He said, you can't do anything religious without passing the plate. I like that. But he says, uh, in verse 44, it says, on that day they did this. So on this day, while they're worshiping by giving themselves to God and giving their song to God, they're also giving their substance to God. They were generous. They worshiped God with their pocketbooks. And again, it mentions the tithe, the first fruits. They give the consecrated portion uh, to God. They gave to God what was due to His name. They're giving worth to God by giving uh, from their substance. I've uh, been doing a lot of weddings this summer, and I was reminded of an old story by the uh, great preacher W.A. Criswell. He was the pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, and obviously he officiated a lot of weddings. And um, supposedly the way uh, it worked when Chriswell did a wedding is the groom at some point would ask Dr. Chriswell, how much do I owe you for the wedding? And Chriswell would always just smile and say, ah, he said, just pay me what she's worth. 
And the story goes that W.A. Criswell made a lot of money doing weddings because at that point, this young man believed that this woman was of an estimable value to him. And I thought about how we could apply that to our relationship with the Lord. We ask ourselves, how much is the Lord worth to us? What is his value to us? Now, of course, we can never pay the true value that God is to us, and God doesn't expect us to do that. But when we give nothing to God or just give something paltry to him, that can never be true worship. The people here, when they, they give this money, remember, too, they're keeping a commitment. Remember back in chapter 10? You remember how they wrote out a vow? They wrote it down on paper. One of the things they vowed to do was to support God's work. So the people here are keeping the vow they've made. And I thought I'd just pause here and ask this question. Do any of you have unfulfilled commitments to God related to finances? We want to fulfill our commitments to God. That's what the people are doing here, fulfilling the commitments they've made to Him. So it's a good question to ask ourselves as individuals, as families, are we generous? Because your giving, your worship through your pocketbook is a barometer of what you think of the Lord and what He's done for you. We can gather here and sing and praise God and be all excited, but where the rubber really kind of meets the road ultimately is do we give of our substance to God? In many ways, that really shows what we believe uh, that God is worth to us. It's an expression of our worship. Now, I told you we we're going to turn over to a New Testament passage, and we'll close here. I just want to read it, and then we'll close. But go over to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. It's a, a great connection here for us with uh, Nehemiah chapter 12. And I want to just show you this very briefly. In uh, Nehemiah chapter 13 and verse 15, it's talking about how we worship God today. What are the sacrifices we give to Him? Notice what uh, Hebrews 13, 15 says, For through, uh, through Him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice to God that is the fruit of lips that give praise to His name. So what is that? That's our song, right? It's the fruit of lips where we give praise to God's name. That's one of the things we offer God. And then what does it say next? And do not neglect doing good. That's whole life worship. That's giving myself to God, to do good, to offer my obedience and my life to Him. And then what's the next thing? And sharing. That's giving of our substance to the Lord from our pocketbook. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. The same three things here. We worship God with our praise, uh, with our person, with our pocketbook. So if someone was to ask you this week, what is worship? Worship is giving worth to God. It's worship. It's, a, it's ascribing worth to our great God. And if someone were to say, well, how do you worship God? What does it look like to be a worshiper of God? Say to them, you give to God yourself, you give to God your song, and you give to God uh, your substance. That's what worship is, and that's what worship looks like. Now, as we close, let me say this as we get ready to go to prayer. To, to really worship God, in fact, to worship God at all, you have to be spiritually alive. You cannot worship God if you don't know Him. And the Bible says the way we come to know God is through His Son, Jesus Christ. You can never worship God for who He is if you haven't accepted the, the sacrifice that God has given through His Son, Jesus Christ. So if you don't know the Lord Jesus here this morning, you've never received Him, 
There's a great verse in the Bible. It says it as simply as you can put it in Romans 10, 13. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You can call upon the Lord today and have your sins washed away. You can be saved. You can become a worshiper of the true God. Let's pray together. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who's never come to faith in Jesus, never believed in Him and called upon Your name to trust in Him, may they do it right now and take Jesus Christ to be their Savior from sin. Father, for those of us who know You, may we worship You in spirit and in truth. Lord, just as individuals during the week and as families, may we take time to see who You are in the Word and to look at the beautiful creation around us. See your glory reflected in that. And Father, may we say so. May we speak and sing praises to you. Father, move us more and more to give our lives to you. And Father, I pray that as a church, we'll give our substance to you as well. We'll be faithful with the riches that you've given to each one of us. Well, Father, help us here at Faith Bible Church to be known as a worshiping church, people who love you, who love you more than anything and give you worth. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.